0: Welcome back to Unjustly Podcast. My name is Sandy, and this is my co-host, Stephanie. Hi, everyone. Happy April. I hope everyone had a good Easter weekend, Um, but we are back for another frustrating episode of A Wrongful Conviction. Nice. (laughs) So the story I have for you today has a ton of twists in it. Uh, There are multiple levels of wrongful convictions in this case, and the defense lawyer who is now handling the case actually experienced his own wrongful conviction in his past as well. I, it's crazy. Okay. I'm really excited for this one. So there is a lot going on in today's episode, but I am excited to share with you the story of Terrence Richardson and Ferran Claiborne, two men who were found not guilty but are still currently serving a life sentence in prison. Okay. Yes.
1: How does that happen?
0: I know, right? We'll get into that. Sources for the story can be found in the description of this podcast. So on April 25th, 1998 in Waverly, Virginia, officer Alan Gibson was shot in the abdomen in the woods behind an apartment complex. He had confronted two male suspects on foot and a struggle ensued, which led to officer Gibson being shot with his own gun. He was taken to the hospital, but ultimately he succumbed to his injuries and died. Officer Gibson was a 25-year-old husband and father to a little girl. Waverly Police Chief Warren Stirrup was the first on the scene. Stirrup says that when he arrived, he made the split decision to pick up Gibson's gun that was used to shoot him and secure it in his car to ensure the safety of other officers. Unfortunately, this move contaminated the evidence. Before he died, Officer Gibson gave the description of the two male assailants. He stated that it was two black men, one was short and balding, and the second one with dreadlocks. So police started rounding up black men that they could find in the area and took them in for questioning. Many were interrogated until they gave up a name of a potential suspect or any information. Included in this roundup was Ferron Claiborne and Terrence Richardson. Neither Claiborne or Richardson fit Officer Gibson's description. At the time, Richardson was a 27-year-old who was short in stature and had closely cropped cornrows. Claiborne was 22 years old and was tall and had a bald haircut. So this is the opposite of what Gibson had described. He said one was short and balding, Mm -hmm. whereas the other guy was tall Mm -hmm. um, and had a complete bald haircut, not balding. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, he said, had dreadlocks, whereas... This one has Richardson cornrows. had cornrows, yeah. And tightly. It wasn't like long cornrows. It was tightly cropped cornrows. Another two witnesses, a 10 and 15-year-old girl, both witnessed Officer Gibson come to the parking lot, leave, and then come back and casually walked behind the complex to the woods. Yeah, okay. it sounds odd already. They heard a gunshot and saw a big black guy with dreadlocks run away from the scene, is what they said. Okay. That was their description of the guy. Um, So they went to call for help, and their description matched Officer Gibson's description, which again, did not match either Richardson or Claiborne. Eventually, though, one of the men that had been questioned by police gave them the names of Richardson and Claiborne. So Sean Wooden lived near their apartment complex where Officer Gibson was shot. He had a very long criminal history and had outstanding charges for drugs, theft, and sexual assault. Wooden said multiple times he didn't know anything about the murder, but after he realized they weren't going to let him go, he says he was there with both Richardson and Claiborne. Hmm. Wooden would not be charged with anything in exchange for his testimony. So it sounds to me as though this guy who has a criminal history and was being interrogated about a murder until he could give information might have gotten scared and just gave police two names so that he could be let go. Mm -hmm. And this is something that does happen because we've seen this with the Central Park Five. Yeah. Apart from a lot of other cases. Um, But in the Central Park Five, the kids gave names of people they had never even met before just so that they could get out of there and get home. So this is a common thing, which it, that's crazy to me though, because
1: I don't know that I could just pull pull like two random names out of the air. I'm sure they were not
0: like random. It's like no, what they knew them, but like so we'll get into like their connections. But the idea of knowing you don't know anything about this case, yeah. and you're just gonna say names anyway. With the Central Park Five, the police gave them the names, yeah, and then they were like, okay, I was with so and so, even though they had never met them in yeah. person. I'm wondering if by then maybe police did mention both of them as potential suspects or, oh, we have them here too, and they're talking. yeah. Yeah, and so Wooden's like, oh, yeah, I was with them, and they did it. But, you know, for exchange for my testimony, I don't want any part of this. Another witness, Yvette Newby, also had a criminal record and outstanding drug charges. Originally, she said she didn't know anything. Then she said she was there, and she named a person who she said did it unfortunately that person was in prison at the time of the shooting Mm. so she lied (laughs) okay (laughs) so the cops arrested her and charged her with contempt because she obviously gave a false story yeah um and that's when she agreed to testify against richardson and claiborne Mm. already a mess yeah we're two witnesses in and it's already not looking good So with these two unreliable testimonies, they closed the case in a day and charged both Richardson and Claiborne with capital murder. The description Officer Gibson gave was ignored, and the description the two girls made were also ignored. These witnesses weren't the only things ignored, though. So let's look at what else investigators and the prosecutors ignored. Both men had alibis. Wooden, who said he was there at the scene with Richardson and Claiborne, live with his girlfriend and kids. Wooden's girlfriend gave a completely different story. Wooden's girlfriend said that at the time of the shooting, Wooden was in bed with her. Okay. (laughs) Um, She also said that Richardson was on their couch watching TV with her kids because he had spent the night. Hmm. So this happened in the morning. As she went to start the laundry, a neighbor went over to tell her that someone had gotten shot in the apartment complex nearby. Even though Wooden eventually told police he was there, his girlfriend basically said, I don't know what he's talking about. He was home with me. And so was Richardson. And I'm sure the kids could corroborate that story as well. Right. Claiborne had stayed the night at his uncle's house. That morning, he started walking over to his girlfriend's house. His cousin saw him walking and said hi to him. Soon after, a bunch of police cars started driving past him. A policeman had seen him walking as well. I didn't include this in my writing, but I do remember that Claiborne had also like there was a bunch of police officers going around and he called one over and was like, what's going on? Hmm. And that's when they told him like someone got shot behind the apartment complex. So like he has a cousin that said he saw him walking in a certain, you know, in a certain block. Mm -hmm. Another police officer saw him walking and then he calls over to some police officers like, dude, what's going on? Yeah. But he still ended up in this situation. So it's just crazy to me. Everything that unfolds, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. During the investigation, a hair sample and other fibers were taken from Officer Gibson's body. The gun was taken for examining. DNA samples, as well as fibers from their home and clothes, were taken from Richardson and Claiborne. None of them matched. So there's absolutely no physical evidence tying these two men to the murder. No fingerprints on the gun, no DNA whatsoever, no hair match, and no fibers found on Gibson matched to anything the two men owned. According to Gibson, the two men had wrestled him to take his gun and held him down as they shot him. With all this close contact, surely there would have been evidence left behind. Mm -hmm. And there was fibers found on him. It just didn't match the two suspects that they had. So it didn't fit their story. No, it didn't fit their story. One more thing, Officer Gibson said there were only two men. He followed two men to the woods. Two men attacked him. One man held him down while the other shot him. So two. According to Wooden, though, the star witness, he said he was there with Richardson and Claiborne, which makes it three men. Again, this was ignored. So everything the officer is telling them, It doesn't have any weight to it, it looks like. They just, they had Richardson, they had Claiborne, they had someone that says like, oh yeah, it was them, Mm -hmm. I was there, I saw it, and that's it, and they ran with it. So essentially, police have absolutely nothing. They have two testimonies from witnesses who had something to gain from them, but also who had inconsistencies in their stories and completely conflicted with what the victim said happened and what the witness's own girlfriend said happened as well. The description given by the victim and two other witnesses did not match Richardson and Claiborne. Zero evidence connected them to the crime, and both had alibis. One thing to note, there was a man whose sister lived at the apartment complex that did match the description that Officer Gibson gave. At the time of the murder, he was out on bond for a gun charge and was a known drug dealer. He was never investigated. Hmm. But all of a sudden, Richardson and Claiborne found themselves entangled in what is about to become an extremely complicated case with a lot of doubt. So the prosecutor, David Chappelle, knew from the start that they didn't have anything on these two men. He stated, It was frustrating handling the cases because while I believed we had the right to criminal agents, the evidence as a whole was very borderline for proving murder. So the prosecutor already knew. They had a really weak case. Mm -hmm. So because of that, Chappelle offered a controversial plea bargain to Richardson and Claiborne. Both men had planned on pleading not guilty. However, their attorney believed that this plea deal was their best bet and urged them to take it. Richardson stated that his attorney told him that if he messed around and went to trial and lost, he could very well get the death penalty. And Claiborne stated that he didn't have the funds to go to trial anyway. Hmm. So reluctantly, out of fear for being found guilty and getting the death penalty, the two maintained their innocence but took the plea deal to avoid trial. In December 1999, Richardson pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter. Claiborne pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact, which was just a misdemeanor. So we went from charging these two men with capital murder of a police officer to manslaughter for one and a misdemeanor accessory for the other. This tells me that the prosecution literally had absolutely nothing against Richardson and Claiborne because there's absolutely no way they would let alleged cop killers go on manslaughter in a misdemeanor charge. And yeah, it, but it's
1: crazy that they, they feel the need to still charge them with something because they've already been arrested. Yeah. It's already out there. And so now letting them go would make them look like fools. So mm-hmm. let's just charge them with something even though we know we have nothing against yeah. them. It's people's lives. That's what's yeah. crazy. It's like they're playing with people's lives mm-hmm. or like they're toying it's a with game. it. It's I don't know. I don't know how you become so removed from the fact that like – you're changing someone's life even Mm -hmm. though you know that you don't have on a legal basis enough to charge them with
0: anything yeah and to get it down to a misdemeanor charge like that right there should just tell you like this wasn't okay this wasn't meant to be guys this isn't your your guy this isn't your guys at all but they sentenced richardson to 10 years in prison with two years of probation after and Claiborne was sentenced to 12 months with time served, and he was released and free that day. Leaving the courtroom, Claiborne said, I thank God, I think I've been blessed. The grieving family of Officer Gibson, however, were very upset about the plea deal and distraught that justice wasn't being served. It sounded like they were a little blindsided by it too. Like they, this isn't something that they agreed on. This mm-hmm. isn't something that they were pushing for at all. So I think like this... Plea deal was given without consent mm-hmm. of the family, which I'm not even sure if they usually ask for consent I think, or.
1: I don't know. Advice? If they, yes, I think they do bring it to them, because basically, if the if the family were to say no, like I think they I think they'd have to take that into consideration. I think they do it out of courtesy. I don't know mm-hmm. that they need to legally get their approval to do it, but I do know that for most plea deals, it's gone past the family and mm-hmm. at least talked
0: about. Yeah, there's no way they would have consented to this misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. But that was it, and the case was closed. Claiborne was free and ready to put the ordeal behind him, and Richardson was looking to get out before 2010. But Officer Gibson's family was not happy about the plea deal given to both men. Understandably so, if they truly believe that, you know, these guys did it, I get it. But there's no evidence for it. So, they reached out to the Department of Justice for help, and just one year later, both Richardson and Claiborne found themselves being indicted by the FBI for the exact same murder charge of Officer Gibson, but this time, they included drug charges as well. So, Richardson is already in prison for manslaughter for this officer from a plea deal given to him by the prosecutor, and all of a sudden, now they want to try him again for the murder. But federally? Federally. Federally. This sounds like double jeopardy to me, uh, which states that you can't be tried twice for the same crime. But in one of the news articles, uh, legal analyst Bill Shields explains how this is possible. Shields stated that, quote, the state can try you and then the federal government can try you for the same thing under the Rinaldi Doctrine. So the doctrine came from Rinaldi v. United States, uh, which held that the Constitution does not deny the state and federal governments the power to prosecute for the same act. Also, the state guilty pleas can't prevent the federal government from trying them for murder as long as they used it in a criminal conspiracy. And that's where the conspiracy to sell drugs and all that stuff came from. Mm-hmm. So they had to add that
1: part it sounded into like, this in order to be able to try them.
0: Yeah, but either way, like... I don't double jeopardy only applies for a state to not be able to try them twice. Like you can be tried once in state and once in federal. That doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -mm. So here we go for a second round of charges, except this time they actually went to trial along with the murder charge of officer Gibson. They also charged the two men with conspiracy to sell hundreds of kilos of cocaine. But again, they had no physical evidence. They did not find any drugs, no money or expensive items bought from drug money, no text messages or phone calls about drug deals, and no drug paraphernalia. The only evidence they had to make these charges were testimony from several drug dealers who testified in exchange for their own freedom, as usual. These men claimed that Claiborne had been selling drugs since he was 15 years old. Yet somehow, he managed to fly under the radar for all these years in this very small town and wasn't caught doing or selling drugs just sounds very odd to me. And like none of his friends confirmed that he was like... Yeah. Oh, God. As for evidence for the murder charge, they didn't have anything new. Just the sole testimony of Wooden, which we already know is very problematic. So again, we have no physical evidence of any crime for any of these charges. During the trial, prosecutors argued a drug deal gone bad is what led to Gibson's death in those woods. The feds alleged that Richardson and Claiborne were drug kingpins leading a drug ring, even though they couldn't find proof of the men being in the woods or ever even having drugs on them or at their place. At this point, it sounds like a setup and a witch hunt. I understand there would be a lot of pressure to convict someone for the murder of a police officer, and the family absolutely deserves justice— But the case against these two men sounds so forced that I think they completely lost sight of doing an actual investigation. Mm -hmm. And it appears that the jury felt the same way because after the trial was over, the jury found both Richardson and Claiborne not guilty of murder. But with the testimonies of drug dealers, the jury found the two men guilty of one drug count. So out of the FBI's whole investigation for this federal trial, the only conviction they could get was for one drug count, which for someone who is innocent still sounds like a bad deal, but at least it wasn't a murder conviction. But it doesn't end there. Of course, it doesn't end there. (laughs) Um, The drug conviction would have resulted in a maximum penalty of 20 years. However... Due to a loophole in the federal sentencing guidelines, the court was able to extend the sentence to life in prison for both Richardson and Claiborne. This was basically based on the fact that they already had guilty pleas in the state court. The court relied on the decision in United States v. Watts, which allows the courts to make a finding of guilt by a preponderance of the evidence, even if found not guilty. So even though the jury found them not guilty, they were able to say, well, they already kind of pleaded guilty to having some kind of involvement in the murder. And that loophole allowed them to give both men a life sentence with no physical evidence. So there's this thing apparently oh where even God. if you're found not guilty, um, depending on the situation, the court can say like, yeah, you found them not guilty, but like, I feel like there's enough evidence for them to say that, is that they're federal guilty. federal or state or both? Right now it's federal. I'm not sure if that also applies to state, but this was a federal sentencing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really odd, um, but even though the jury's like, no, they're not guilty, they kind of already pled guilty because they took to the case because they took the plea deal. Yeah, and so the court is like, no, they already pled guilty to it. So like, even though you found them not guilty, I'm going to enhance their sentencing because they had more involvement than I think they did. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's scary. It is. So the legal analyst that I mentioned earlier, Bill Shields, stated, quote, under the sentencing guidelines, they can have what they call enhanced sentencing based on criminal activity for which you have not been convicted. However, the way it happened in this case is odd. It's a miscarriage of justice to enhance on something they have actually been acquitted of. I have not Mm. seen that before. Yeah. Federal court was trying to throw anything they could at these guys and like do whatever it took to get them life in prison. No matter the cost. Yeah. So former Waverly Police Chief Warren Stirrup, the officer who I mentioned earlier that was the first to show up to the scene to help Officer Gibson... He spoke to ABC 8 News regarding the case after the men were found guilty of the drug charge and allegedly leading this drug ring. Police Chief Stirrup, who is also friends with Officer Gibson, let's keep this in mind. Mm. So he does care about Officer Gibson. He does want, you know, justice to serve for the family. But this is what he has to say. He says, quote, Kingpins? Come on. I never saw them. I never knew them. We knew who were the drug players in the drug scene on that street. Those two were not players. So Stirrup doesn't believe any of the allegations they were accused of. I also want to mention real quick that the investigation was taken from the Waverly police and the state police took over as investigation. So that seems odd to me as well. It sounds like this police chief really doesn't believe that these guys had any involvement with the murder. It's also interesting
1: that like you're in a small town Mm -hmm. and like, who better to run an investigation when you know all of the people in the town, you know the players, you mm-hmm. know who's involved in what? It would make sense that someone who knows those things would be the one leading the investigation. Yeah. And so for that investigation to leave their hands and then be put in the hands of the state police who might not have the knowledge of the town. Right. It's, it is a little weird, especially considering the fact that he's come out and said these people are not involved in drugs. Yeah. I know who is and it's not them, That that is
0: a little concerning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm surprised that I don't know if the FBI interviewed him to see what his thoughts are on that. I'm pretty sure he would have told them, like, there's no way these guys had any hundreds of kilos is what they're accusing him. Not like a little bit that they had in their pocket, like hundreds of kilos that they're conspiring to sell. That's the kind of stuff we see crossing the border. Yeah. (laughs) And for the police chief to be like, no, like, that's not them. But you're still going to charge them with these drug charges, which then led to their life sentence because Mm -hmm. that was able to get enhanced. By the court saying no there's a preponderance of evidence that they're guilty because they did these plea deals in state court like this is a giant mess yeah yeah a juror that was at the federal trial dawn white also spoke to abc 8 news regarding the case she described the prosecution's evidence as a parade of prisoners being used as witnesses and all testifying in orange jumpsuits all of them had something to gain from their testimony White also said that no one ever thought Richardson and Claiborne were guilty of murder. White said that even though they found them guilty of the drug charge, she assumed they would get a max sentence of like 10 years, which is what Richardson was already serving. But it wouldn't be until years later that she would discover the men were sentenced to life in prison because the judge made the decision after the jurors were dismissed and did not consent with them regarding the sentencing. Wow. White said she was dumbfounded and couldn't believe it because they found them not guilty of murder. I mean, these two guys are in federal court. They've already gone through state court. Now the FBI is indicting them. Mm -hmm. It sounded more as like less that the jury truly believed they were guilty of these drug charges, but more of like if the FBI did all of this, there has to be some type of guilt, right? They had to have been involved in some type of way, but they're like, definitely not murder. Like there's no evidence for murder that we don't feel they're guilty. But if they're in this situation and the FBI took in all this effort, there has to be something. So let's give them one count of the drug charges. Let's find them guilty of one count of that because there has to be something, you know, in this. And so when she found out that, No, actually, they got life in prison. It's like, that's not what any of us were hoping for or or thinking would happen or wanted. Yeah. So for that to happen the way it did, and that's completely against what the jury believed in, I think is a miscarriage of justice right there Mm -hmm. in itself. Yeah. The courts basically took everything into their own hands. Yeah. They didn't get this fair trial of your peers and all this stuff. Like, they went completely above them. So legal analyst Shields explains that while a jury has to use a higher standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the judge at sentencing does not and can use a lower standard of proof. Shields says that a judge can say, I think they did it, therefore I'm going to use it to enhance their punishment. And because of that, both Richardson and Claiborne have been in prison for over two decades and potentially for the rest of their lives. So years after the trial... Laquetta Rustin, founder of Providing Light, took on the case. Her organization is dedicated to helping those they believe have been wrongfully accused. So Rustin filed a petition with President Obama asking him to grant Richardson and Claiborne clemency before he left office. Rustin stated, There was never any substantive evidence found to even point the finger at them of even being involved in a conspiracy to sell drugs. She also filed a petition for a reduction in their sentence under the current drug laws, which is substantially lower and would have allowed them to be out already. So although Obama gave clemency to a list of people before leaving office, unfortunately, Richardson and Claiborne were not included in that group. So they continued to sit in prison. And then came attorney Jarrett Adams. One day, as he was sharing his life story with the Virginia Sheriff's Association, Claiborne's aunt, went up to him with tears in her eyes and asked him to look at the case. Adam says he gets a lot of requests, but he had never gotten a case that was as crazy and clear-cut as this one. So I need to take a few minutes to talk about Adams' history so you can appreciate the importance of him taking on this case. So Adams himself was once wrongfully convicted and spent almost 10 years in prison. So this is a wrongful conviction story within a wrongful conviction mm-hmm. story. So in September 1998, 17-year-old Jarrett Adams was traveling to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater with two friends. While there, a white woman claimed that he and his friends raped her at a party. All three men were black. All three defendants were originally tried together. However, due to the accuser drastically changing her testimony at trial, it ended in a mistrial. But the court asked for a retrial. Adams's co-defendant was able to afford a private attorney who presented an alibi witness along with conflicting evidence regarding the incident. Because of this, he was acquitted. Unfortunately, Adams could not afford an attorney and he was appointed ineffective counsel while also being tried as an adult, even though he was still underage. Hmm. His attorney told Jarrett that the best defense is no defense at all. (laughs) And he's just a kid. He was 17 years old. You're going to go along with whatever your attorney says. So even though there is a good witness who could have corroborated Adams' story, the defense lawyer did not present this testimony at the trial. Not surprisingly, Adams was found guilty by an all-white jury. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. After sentencing, they gave Adams the opportunity to address the court. So he stood up and said, quote, I want to apologize to my parents. I'm even going to apologize to the parents of my accuser, but I'm not going to apologize for a rape that never happened. The judge found that Adams wasn't being remorseful, and she gave him an additional eight years in prison. Jesus. So he ended up being sentenced to a total of 28 years. In an interview with CNN, Adams recalls feeling absolutely terrified. He was young, never been in trouble before, only 140 pounds, and he found himself in a maximum security prison with hundreds of grown men. I saw pictures of him when he was arrested, and he looks like a child. Like, he has this baby face. He looks younger than 17, in my opinion. Like, this was a child. While he was in prison, a cellmate encouraged him to keep fighting for his case. So he threw himself into the prison library and spent all of his time studying the law. Thinking back on the time he was studying law books, he states, quote, I didn't really realize the magnitude and seriousness in which the system was systematically putting the noose on young black men in America. He began learning about his constitutional rights and began writing to lawyers who might be able to help him. In 2004, the Wisconsin Innocence Project and attorney Keith Finley accepted his case. They told him that based on the accuser's testimony alone, they were dumbfounded on how he ended up in prison, and not to mention the attorney's failure to present the witness that got his co-defendant a not-guilty verdict. In 2006, his case was brought to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago. The court unanimously overturned his conviction, and in 2007, Adams was finally exonerated and set free. Unfortunately, he was denied compensation for his time spent in prison. When the judge made the final decision on releasing Adams, the judge didn't look up at him at all. So as Adams walked out of the courtroom, he said, you might not look at me now, but you're going to have to see me for the rest of your life. Hmm. And just three months after being released from prison, Adams enrolled into college and was determined to help others who were wrongfully convicted. While going to college, though, he struggled getting a job because although his name and record were cleared, he still had an eight-year employment gap that he had to explain. Right. So, he shoveled snow to help pay rent, and he took night classes. But it paid off, and he eventually earned his Juris Doctorate from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and started a public interest law fellowship with Anne Claire Williams, judge for the Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, the same court that reversed Adams' conviction. Mm, full circle. He became a professor at Loyola and also won the National Defender Investigator Association of the year award for his work with the clemency petition of Reynolds Winter Smith which was granted by President Obama. He then went on to work for the Wisconsin Innocence Project and worked next to the same people who helped get him out. It was the first time an exoneree had been hired by the organization. Adams even won a case with co-counsel Keith Finley, the same attorney who got him out of prison. Oh, I know. Adams started a nonprofit called Life After Justice. Their mission statement says that they are fighting to bring exonerees home and providing much-needed mental health support. They aim to empower exonerees to thrive while starting to reclaim their lives after justice. Adams co-founded this nonprofit with two other wrongfully convicted exonerees who are also committed to helping others. I was really tempted to go into their stories as well in this episode, but it would make it a really long episode. (laughs) So I'm thinking of maybe doing like a mini so in the future of the Life After Justice crew because their stories all seem really interesting and uh, very remarkable as well. But Adams now has his own firm and has been successfully helping many people. In his interview with CNN, Jared stated, I may have graduated from Loyola Law School in Chicago, but I started law school in Wisconsin Department of Corrections. He is now taking cases in the very same state that wrongfully convicted him. Bless him. I know. Jarrett will soon be a published author as well. He wrote a book called Redeeming Justice from Defendant to Defender, My Fight for Equity on Both Sides of a Broken System. So it is scheduled to be released in September of this year, 2021, um, and you can pre-order it. Either on his website or anywhere else that you like to order your books from. I pre ordered a copy for myself from Amazon. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited about that. I can't wait till September. Isn't that wild, though? Isn't that his whole story wild? No, I just... that's
1: crazy. I like good for him, though, too. Yeah. Like to just, I mean, thankfully he was really young. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to kind of stay on track in a sense as far as like and okay, reclaim trying... his life again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: and it but it's just so sad for the, the older men who have yeah. been in for decades and they get out at like 60 mm-hmm. years old, and what do you do from there? Yeah. Oh, man. So three years ago, Adams took on Richardson and Claiborne's case. When he took the case, though, Adams filed a Freedom of Information Act request, or FOIA for short, for their criminal files. The Virginia State Police denied the request, arguing that releasing the documents is at their discretion. As of right now, they are hoping to get a pardon. Adams recently filed on behalf of both men, and a writ of actual innocence petition is pending. His plan was to file this appeal by the end of March. So by the time this episode airs, it will most likely have already been done. I'm feeling really optimistic about this. Um, I know it's going to be a long uphill battle, and they also need your help. So here is my call to action, because Richardson and Claiborne need all of us right now. The easiest thing you can do is spread awareness for this case. Post about it on your social media or tell your friends and family. The more people that know about it, the better. You can follow them on social media under Not Guilty Serving Life. The next most important thing you can do is donate to the cause. Both families put in all the money they had and unfortunately that has all been used. Adams has been working this case pro bono, and it is extremely costly to do all the work needed to exonerate someone, let alone two people on a case. If you can find it in your heart to help out, even if it's just a few dollars, you can visit their website, notguiltyservinglife.org, and you can donate there. Or you can shop their merchandise. They have shirts, masks, and hoodies. All proceeds will go towards legal fees and professional resources to exonerate both men. Nice. And while you're on their website, you can look around to learn more about the case. There is a link to their change.org petition, so you can sign that. Or you can just search for the petition under their names, Terrence Richardson and Farron Claiborne, or under Not Guilty Serving Life. But I will also include the link in our bio on Instagram. In an interview that Adams did with Amanda Knox on Crime Story, he stated, quote, This injustice is a slippery slope. Don't think for a second that it can't happen to you or a loved one. We have to care about what's in our backyard, and we can't do that if we're allowing innocent people to just sit in prison. Justice should be a two-way street. If you find the wrong person is in jail, you should get them out immediately and as fast as possible. Just in the same fashion that you put people away you believe are guilty. So we did reach out to Jared Adams and his team, and we had the privilege of being able to interview Sandra Castillo, the legal assistant for the law offices of Jared Adams, and this is what she had to say. All right. Hi, Sandra. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Sandy. Thank you for having (laughs) me on. I so I appreciate you being here, Um, but can you please introduce yourself and explain to us what your role is?
2: Sure. Um, again, my name is Sandra Castillo. I'm a legal assistant for the law offices of Jared Adams. Um, I've been working with Mr. Adams for about a year, and there's a plethora of, of um, roles that I have. Um, but primarily, um, I manage the social media um, accounts for Not Guilty Serving Life to amplify this case of ours of Terrence and Ferran.
0: Okay, wonderful. So, Richardson and Claiborne have been in prison for over two decades, wrongfully convicted. So, as of today, what is the plan to try to free them?
2: Um, The plan to try to free Mr. Richardson and Mr. Claiborne. Um, We recently obtained um, newly discovered evidence. um, Back, yeah, last year, Um, this evidence was um a written statement from a witness. Um and we obtained affidavits from the Commonwealth attorney who prosecuted the state case. Okay. And he confirmed that the evidence identifying a perpetrator who was not Terrence and Ferron was never presented before both men were um, pressured into entering these false guilty pleas. Oh wow. Um, yeah, we submitted that evidence along with the affidavits to the Office of Attorney General in Virginia, and as of now, nothing has been done. Nothing. Oh, no. And this was back in December. So, to give you an idea of what um, we're looking forward to um, to exonerating both men, um, I start with for one, we're we, we're filing a writ of actual innocence um, to appeal. Um, in state court. Okay. It would be nice if Attorney General Mark Herring would join our actual innocence petition. Um, we can present this before the courts and hopefully get the state court um, guilty pleas reversed. And from there, hopefully both men can come home and Mr. Adams could work to exonerate them on a federal level.
1: It's so crazy.
2: It is crazy.
0: Okay. so. And it's been a rough year for everyone during this pandemic, and even more so for those in prison, I'm sure. Um, Have you spoken to Richardson and Claiborne recently? And if you have, how are they holding up?
2: Yes, um, I speak to both men at least once a week. And to be quite honest, I am very amazed at um, their demeanor. I mean, both men are holding on. It's been a rough, Two decades yeah. for these men. I mean, they've been in prison, being away from their children, who they weren't able to raise, their parents, their family, and you know, just being in prison and you know the environment, and now COVID, it's yeah. been pretty rough for them. Because um, as you know, they weren't even allowed to receive visits, so it's been a whole year since they've seen their family members. Wow. That alone can crush a person's spirit, um, but they've been holding on. They, their hopes are renewed by the support that they've been receiving. Um, you know, The eyes that are on this case currently and just the work that Mr. Adams um, has been putting in. So they're holding on um, and they do believe that they will come home. So that gives me great joy, um, but they're holding on. Okay. They're holding on the best way they can.
0: Yeah, that's all you can really do.
2: Absolutely.
0: Okay. So the last time we spoke, you had mentioned that the biggest way our listeners can help these two men was to donate money to their cause to help with the legal fees and such. Could you explain what types of fees are associated with this type of work and how much money it could take to help free a wrongfully convicted person?
2: Huh. I mean, I don't even know where to start. (laughs) I don't even know where to start. I mean, Jared himself, Mr. Adams, has been representing these men um, for close to four years. He has investigated um, the majority of this time. Um, He's been working this case pro bono. Um, Let me just add that because the family has been tapped for years. um, And he's had to use his own finances, his own money to represent these men. It takes, it's a shame because it takes thousands of dollars, thousands of petitions, signatures on petitions, and thousands of hours, if not more, and decades for innocent men to be exonerated in this system. So if I had to begin to tell you how much money it takes, I don't think I could even pinpoint it. Uh, But it's, it's really important for us to raise um, funds, again, because- Mr. Adams is representing both men, Mm -hmm. Um, we have professional resources, we believe can exonerate both men. Um, And, you know, it's, that's what it's going to take. Um, If you think about, you know, why or certain factors that cause wrongful convictions, um, poverty is one of the main ones. Mm -hmm. Um, If Terrence and Ferron had the funds in the, on the state level to continue fighting this case, it's very possible me, you and I wouldn't be speaking right now. Yeah. Um, but because they didn't have the funds and they were scared out of their minds mm-hmm. and desperate to stay alive, they entered into those guilty pleas. Yeah. And that in itself came back to bite them in, in their butts because that's what the judge used to sentence them to life.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there- So a- yes. That you're trying to reach, is there a number
2: The goal that we're trying to reach is um, $100,000, and that will cover all the costs um, from, you know, the professional resources, the visuals that we're trying to create, um, the experts that we're trying to hire, travel, filings, um, just anything that we believe would um, help and assist us bring these men home.
0: So I understand the criminal justice system can be really complicated and it has a lot of flaws. What do you think is something that needs to be changed to avoid another injustice, such as Richardson and Claiborne's case specifically?
2: If you think about this case, Mm. um, I would definitely say um, eradicating and and, and getting away with um, the United States versus Watts. Mm, United States versus Watts, for sure. I mean, this law in itself, Permits the court to make a finding of guilt, even if defendants were found not guilty. Uh-huh. How unjust is that? Like, it it makes absolutely no sense to have a jury. It makes absolutely no sense to waste tax dollars if right. you if the judge has you know, um, is able to make the decision to just you know sentence find guilt and mm-hmm. sentence these guys to whatever he wants to sentence them to despite a not guilty verdict. So I would say eradicating that. So I did pre-order Mr.
0: Adams' book, Redeeming Justice. Are you able to tell us anything about this book and the work that Mr.
2: Adams has put into it? Huh, wow. Um, Mr. Adams has been, um, uh, he's put in countless hours in writing and telling his story. I don't think he wanted anyone else to tell his story, and I don't think anyone could tell his story the way he could. (laughs) Um, The reviews in itself, remarkable, remarkable. Um, I think for everyone who's going to read this book or has read this book, I mean, they'd find this book chilling yet inspiring. He's received reviews from best-selling authors like John Grishan and Scott Turrell and, When I say you'll need, you know, a tissue next to you when you're reading this book, um, but then you'll quickly be inspired also. um, It's no exaggeration. Yeah. Yeah. Redeeming Justice will be that book.
0: Yeah. Are there any statements that Richardson and Claiborne want to tell our listeners?
2: um i i I did speak with um both men on sunday and i did let them know that i would be you know doing this podcast and you know they're just i think they're in awe right now um just the fact that people are paying attention and want to hear their story um if you think about the fact that it's been Twenty years, no one has cared. No one has given them the attention that they need. And just to be receiving a little bit of attention that they're receiving now, um, they're just grateful. They're thankful. They they'd like to thank everyone supporting them, and they're encouraging everyone to continue being their voices, to continue fighting for them, and you know, to to hold on even when we have the weeks where it seems like it's it's difficult and nothing is moving. To continue holding on because they're they're relying on us.
0: My heart breaks for them. All right, is there anything else that you wanna add?
2: I mean, to just piggyback on what I said from um, Mr. Claiborne and Mr. Um, Richardson's um, statement. I am urging, and so is Jared, the law office is Jared Adams. We are urging everyone to just please continue helping us apply pressure on the Office of Attorney General um, in Virginia. Mr. Herring himself is busy campaigning And it just makes no sense that Terrence and Farron would spend another day in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, This evidence that was presented to his office is clear and it's convincing. Mm -hmm. And let's just keep in mind that these men were acquitted of Officer Gibson's murder. So they shouldn't be there in the first place. Um, But that alone should, you know, render um, Mr. Herring to do what is right, and he's simply not doing it. So we're just urging everyone to continue being their voices, continue speaking out online, um, tweet Mr. Herring, at Mark Herring, VA, um, write him and his office, call him, um, leave messages, but Mm -hmm. continue to apply the pressure because that's the only way um, we're gonna receive what we need from his office. And that is for them to seek justice for Terrence and Ferran and officer Gibson. Yeah. I mean, officer Gibson, let's, let's not forget that officer Gibson was shot and killed and his killers are still out there amongst the citizens of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And these elected officials are well aware of that and no one is doing anything about it. So his daughter and his family deserves justice, just as, just as much as Terrence and Ferran and their family. So yeah. please... It takes a village. It does. It does. It takes a collective village. And um, like we like to say, you know, the court has failed them. So it's going to it's going to take the court of public outcry to save these men. Mm-hmm. That's what it's going to take. And it, it's, it has happened. If we're looking at, you know, just most recent cases, it's happening. Mm-hmm. So we need it to continue to happen for these men because yeah. they are relying on us.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sandra, for being here. We appreciate you
2: and taking the time to do this Uh, we need more people like you as well oh thank you thank you so much it's a privilege it's an honor and I appreciate you having me on and allowing me to just detail the case and just giving it your attention Mm because that 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 that's honorable in my in my opinion all right yeah I appreciate it thank you so much
0: So thank you again, Sandra, for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you listeners who continue to support us and support the causes that we keep bringing you. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It truly takes a very large village to help get someone wrongfully convicted, exonerated. Mm -hmm. As we've seen in many of our episodes, this process can take decades. It can take a lot of community engagement and signatures from the public. It's expensive and almost always the lawyers are doing it without pay. And at the end of the day, the victim and their families don't get the justice they deserve when there's a wrongful conviction. Officer Gibson lost his life while on duty, and the murderer is still out there. On the Officer Down Memorial page online, there is a very sweet tribute to him from his friends and family. But what was most touching was that his wife, who to this day, over 20 years later, still writes messages to him on this page. Oh. I know. I spent a good half hour reading dozens of messages she wrote him, and I was just bawling my eyes out. She wrote to him every anniversary, every birthday, every Father's Day, every holiday, every time she thinks about him, and she updates him on what's going on with his daughter and now his grandkids. Yeah, it was really hard to read. Um, They built a park in his honor, and his grandkids were the first that got to play in it. Aw. Mm-hmm. There was one message from his son-in-law who said that he remembered talking to him on the phone when he was young and he was at boot camp with his brother. And then he said years later, he met a beautiful woman and that woman was his daughter. It truly is heartbreaking and my sympathies go out to the entire family. The hard thing is, is that it seems like some of the family does believe Richardson and Claiborne are guilty, um, But this is pretty common with all the wrongful conviction cases. Uh, We've seen cases where DNA evidence exonerates someone, but the victim's family still believes that they have something to do with it. So there's really no getting around it. It's painful for everyone involved, and I get that. But there's no justice for anybody if someone really is wrongfully convicted. It just creates more victims. So I don't know exactly where the family's stance on this case is as of today. Um, The only reason that I believe that they still uh, believe that Richardson and Claiborne are guilty is because I saw a message on the memorial page from, I think it was like 2017, um, when Obama did not grant the clemency to them. Um, The wife had wrote on there like, Thank goodness, you know, mm-hmm. your murderers are still in prison. He didn't grant them the clemency. So justice is served. Oh. But this was years ago. And I recently saw an interview with Adams um, where he had stated that the daughter of Officer Gibson had stated that she um, is possibly pushing for the case to be re-examined. Mm. Um, and, and I wasn't sure if it was in the sense like, oh, I believe they're innocent. So I want this case to be reviewed. Or if it's like, a no, I'm pretty sure they're guilty. Like, can you review it just to make sure or so we can solidify and they stop asking for pardons or clemency or whatever the case is. So I'm not sure where her stance is, but it did sound like she had said she does want the case to be reviewed. So I don't know where the family is at this point. But again, it's hard for everybody involved, no matter what side you're on. Mm -hmm. And I personally don't think it should be this hard to right a wrong and fix what our criminal justice system has thrown away. But this is where we are, and people like Terrence Richardson and Faron Claiborne need your help. This can only be fixed with community effort. So after hearing their story, if you believe they are innocent, please consider helping their case. And if you like what we are doing, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And I believe Spotify and Podbean have an option to do the same. Um, But you help us out a lot by leaving those ratings. And the more you help us out, the more we can bring the word out about these injustices and the more awareness and assistance we can bring to them as Mm -hmm. well. I mean, these cases never cease to, like, amaze me,
1: shock me. Yeah. You know, it's it's like all the wrongful conviction cases are are crazy in and of Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. But, like, this one just... It's It's a little harder. It's just sad because there just isn't very much pointing to the fact that they've done this. Yeah. And then you have, like, the city police saying, these people didn't do it. Like, they're not involved with any of these things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just very, it's, like, more confusing than a regular wrongful conviction case, you know, which makes it even sadder that, especially the sentencing thing, right? Like, the the fact that they're sitting in prison for for life because the judge decided to like use this loophole to extend their
0: sentence i don't know it just yeah. it's and then they they very com- abusive pleaded yeah i think it's definitely an abuse of power but it's like they completed the state sentencing and now they have to complete the federal sentence right like i'm sorry what <laughs> i don't understand how that make sense and i'm not sure if that's been common for a lot of cases where they have a state sentencing and a federal sentencing and they have to complete both of them i mean obviously it's done concurrently but you have two separate sentencings yeah
1: but that most likely has to do with the fact that there's like a state prison and a federal prison mm-hmm. right so it's like but you can you have both
0: i would like, assume maybe one or the other
1: i don't know i don't know <laughs> but like my guess is like well you'll finish your state sentence in the state prison and then mm. once you're done with that what i don't know what would, would happen is like what if they were both life sentences which i guess you wouldn't know that would never happen
0: because then why would the judge extend it yeah, well they probably would have gone to federal court then if they yeah. already had their guys right like, the, the whole issue that the federal government got involved was because the family was upset that yeah. the plea deals were given to them and so they reached out to the department of justice and said hey you guys need to take a look at this this isn't right and that's how that came into play But I don't know. There's just so much to it. It's really crazy um, Mm -hmm. to think that these guys are solely there for life on one drug charge with no evidence other than drug dealers saying that they did this and then they get off clean because of their testimony, Mm -hmm. which we see all the time as one of the leading causes of wrongful conviction to begin with. Yeah. And... And then they're just sitting in jail for life with one drug count. The sheriff of Waverly, Virginia is like, no, they're, that's not them. But here they are. They're in jail. They're in prison. Are. They're in prison. So I, it's this was, crazy. It yeah. Is, it, this is
1: definitely one of the like most confusing ones. Crazier yeah. wrongful conviction cases.
0: The legality coming. behind yeah. it is very confusing. Yeah. And apparently to the legal analysts who were commenting on it, even they said this is, this is really odd. This is not mm-hmm. typical. This isn't th- something that happens all the time. So the fact that this happened in this type of case is crazy. So I think this one is really going to take the entire community getting together mm-hmm. to help these guys out. All right. So don't forget to follow them on social media, Not Guilty Serving Life. Sign the petition. Donate if you can. Purchase their merchandise if you can. This is going to take a group effort, so let's get this done together. Yeah, you guys. Yeah. Thanks for being here for another episode of Unjustly. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening on so you don't miss an episode. Follow us on social media under Unjustly Podcasts and have a conversation with us on there. We love engaging with our listeners. So stay tuned for next week's mini-sode. Thank you, everyone.
1: Um, Hope you guys enjoyed this. See you next time. Bye. Happy April. I
0: it's gonna be April and okay (laughs) no I knew it you just looked at me like I said it wrong no like is March (laughs) bitch during the investigation oh I skipped something I think (laughs) which was just a misdemeanor at the time or ever (laughs) I idolize oh uh I idolize sister Helen Prejean is one Steve Brian Stevenson Stevenson, I fucking love him Jared Adams has just been added to this motherfucking list (laughs) Bye. I don't know. I I said see you next Ah. time. See
1: you next time and bye is the same. Yeah, no. I said my bye. Yeah. Okay. We're good. Yeah. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.